Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. So before the episode begins, I would just like to say a huge thank you to Castbox for helping me make the Castbox original Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71. Now, Castbox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, and you can find all of your favorite podcasts there. Personally, I think CastBox is the best podcasting platform out there, and I hope you guys check it out because I think you'll be surprised at just how much variety they have and how user-friendly their app is. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening, and without further ado, let's begin. I found the first floater when I was seven years old. It had washed up on the shore about a hundred yards from my family's summer house. It still looked mostly human. A bit swollen and decomposed, but whole enough for me to immediately recognize what it was. Even as a kid, I was never very squirmish. I used to watch my father skin the deer that he caught on his hunting trips, and I would clean my own fish whenever I reeled one in on the salty lake. Finding a human body was the best thing that could have happened to me that summer. I thought about telling my parents, but there was no way that they would let me play with it. Heck, they might even ban me from going down to the water at all. A thought which my seven-year-old brain equated to the nuclear holocaust, an asteroid destroying the earth, or other disasters of similar magnitude. So, I did what any clear-thinking seven-year-old would do. I gathered up all the kids that I knew and charged them five cents each to poke it with a stick. The salt water preserved it well enough for us to stomach the smell, but poking it would release some of the bloated gas still trapped in the carcass. I even told them that they could have their money back if they could lick it without throwing up. No one got their money back, obviously, and I made $60 before one of the little snitches told his mother and she called the police. Next summer, when I came back, the first thing I did was race back to the same spot. And sure enough, there had been two more bodies washed up over the winter. 
These must have been sitting out in the sun for a while, though, because I couldn't even get close to them. My father had followed me that time, and I wasn't allowed to have any fun. The police said that these bodies must be new, since they would have been completely rotten if they had been down there for a year. Over the next ten years, there had been another three bodies found beside the lake. Each was slightly more decomposed than the last, but the police still insisted that they had to be separate incidences because they were all still too fresh. None of them could be identified, and as they didn't fit any missing persons within the entire state, the police had no leads to discover who was dumping the bodies. They had, for all intensive purposes, given up. But I was never able to put the mystery out of my mind. I had my own theory. I decided that those people didn't just die in the lake. They lived in it too. I thought that when they die, they float to the surface just like when humans die. They're buried in the ground. In retrospect... The idea didn't really make any sense, but it had started forming when I was so young that I refused to let go until the mystery had been resolved. When I was in college, I became scuba certified for the sole purpose of finding where those bodies were coming from. I rented my own equipment and went back to that lake the summer of my freshman year. The water was incredibly buoyant from all the salt, and it took almost 20 pounds of weights before I would finally sink to the floor. It was slow progress working my way through the lake, six separate dives before I found what I didn't even know I was looking for. A sunken plane. I don't know how long it had been down there for, but it looked rusted as shit. One of the doors had completely rusted off, in fact, and I was able to enter and look around. There were two more bodies inside, no more than skeletons now. The inside of the plane was compartmentalized, almost like it was broken into sealed jail cells. The locks on some of the cells had long since rusted open, and I'm guessing these are where the floaters came from. If they were in their own pressurized air chambers, then that explains how they were preserved so long. As the plane deteriorated, they must have broken free and floated to the surface one by one. My most important discovery, though, was the black box. Although, it was painted bright orange, so it's a pretty stupid name. I brought it back with me and swam to the surface to research my findings. The plane was a Douglas C-47, which was used for military transport during World War II. They were still being used for decades afterwards, though, but some remained operational even up to 2012, so... I still don't know how long it's been there. The flight data recorder had completely deteriorated, but the cockpit voice recorder still had some salvageable tape. Most of it was fuzzy or jumpy, but here's what I have. 164 Roger. Unable to make your last message. Please repeat. It's out. Repeat. One of them has gotten out. Has the cockpit been compromised? Negative. Cell block is still in... Please repeat, Captain. Repeat. Cell block is compromised. It's letting the others out. Holy shit. Remain calm, Captain. Can you neutralize the test subject? 
not without compromising the cockpit. How far am I from the landing field? You're too far out. You won't make it. You're gonna have to land somewhere else. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? You're not granted permission to land. Well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Godspeed to you, sir. Mission terminated. Thank you for your service, Captain. My service ain't over until I bring this bird down. You're ordered to force collision, sir. The test subjects must not escape. Like hell I am. I'm bringing her down in some water right now. Request rescue operations. Mission terminated. Rescue operation denied. After that, all I could hear was engine sounds. It went on for about five minutes and I was about to stop listening when I heard something like a snarling tiger. I guess that I haven't changed that much since I was a kid because I still don't want to bring this into the police. I've got another dive plan next week and I'm going to try and break open the remaining cell blocks to get a look inside. G'day mates. So I just wanted to take a quick break before the next story to thank you guys for listening to Be Scared. If you're a new listener, welcome to The Hive. If you're a long-time fan, thanks for checking out the podcast. If you could please take a moment to do me a favor, to rate and review the show, that would be a huge help. And if you have any stories that you would like to submit for future episodes, you can send them to my email at bish.buster at gmail.com. That's b-i-s-h dot b-u-s-t-a at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and without further ado, here's the next story. I'm sure that many of you have read the recent news story about the flesh-eating bugs. The guy didn't feel a thing standing in the water, but when he stepped out, his feet were savaged into a bloody mess, completely perforated by the creatures. That may sound bad, but after what I've seen, I know that it's going to get a whole lot worse. If you're like me, then your reaction went something like this. One, what the fuck? Gross. I don't want to look at that. Two, but a bug did that? Actually, that's kind of cool. I want to see it again. First of all, I live in Australia, so assuming all the killer jellyfish and snakes weren't deterrent enough, I'm pretty sure swimming is off the menu for me. It did give me another idea, though. So far, I've been stubbornly refusing to acknowledge my summer break science project. We just get six weeks, unlike the States. But class will be starting up again soon, and I had to pick something. And what could be more fun than studying flesh-eating bugs, right? A little research revealed that the perpetrator was probably a family of marine amphipods. They're a type of detritivore, which means that their diet is primarily comprised of decomposing organic matter. As unusual as the case recently demonstrated, however, they are perfectly adept at shredding living tissue as well. I actually live pretty close to the beach where it happened, so I figured I'd just collect a water sample on my display, or write a report, 
post some newspaper clippings on a poster board and voila, all done. The only tricky part was that I had to go at night. The beach was temporarily closed for an environmental safety evaluation, but all accounts online suggested that it was an incredibly rare and isolated incident. I figured I wouldn't even find any of them, but just to be safe, I was up to my knees in rubber and I didn't wade in very far. I filled a couple of glass vials before I got out of the water, but I couldn't tell how much just from eyeballing them. The water was murky and even though I saw some little critters floating around, they could have been anything. I was all set to hike back to my car when I saw the flashlight scouring the beach. I wasn't allowed to be here, so my first instinct was to run. There was no way to hide on the open sand, though, and I figured they'd spot me as soon as I started to move. All I could do was press myself into the sand and hope for the best. The beam of light passed right over my head. I clenched my eyes shut, praying that they'd miss me. All clear, sir. Good, a deep voice said, gravelly like it was obscured from years of smoke. Back the van up here and keep it moving. We're going to be in and out of here in ten minutes. I heard a car pull up nearby in the closed parking lot. I didn't lift my head because I was terrified that any movement would give me away. I had the feeling that these guys weren't supposed to be here either, but that might make it even worse for me if I was found. It sounded like they were dragging something heavy through the sand. I wanted to look so damn bad. I lifted my head just enough to see a massive dolly piled high with bags like fertilizer. It was being pushed across the sand on mounted skies by four men in dark blue overalls going to get a lot more visible when the activating catalyst hits the water, okay? The gravel voice said. He was an old man, long white hair flowing halfway to his ass. Line up the bags, and don't pour them until they're open and ready to go. Three minutes tops. Make it happen. The men in overalls pulled long-boned handled knives from their belt and systematically slashed the bags open. I strained from my prone position, but... I couldn't see what was inside. Their attention was all diverted though, so this seemed like a good chance to make my escape. I pushed myself up to my hands and knees and started a huddled dash back towards the street. It must have been close to midnight then. Around ten seconds later, it felt like noon. A wave of green light overtook me from behind and illuminated the sky into ghastly pale. I stumbled over myself, pitching flat again before looking behind. The men were pouring the bags into the ocean one by one, and where the powder inside met the water, an explosive wave of luminescence blasted out like lightning streaking through the waves. It took my eyes several seconds to adjust before I realized the old man was staring directly at me. Rob the cover of darkness, I lay stark under his steel gaze. If I had hesitated any longer, I would have been dead. A loud crack rent the night air and sand ruptured directly in front of me. Another shot, this time tearing through the air an inch from my shoulder. I was back on my feet, dodging through the palm trees that flourished densely at the end of the beach. Shouting interspersed the explosions of light behind me. I didn't trust the open road around my car, so 
I stayed in the thicket until the shouting passed. A few minutes later, I heard the roar of the van ripping out of the parking lot. I counted to a hundred before I could breathe evenly again. As far as I could tell, they seemed to be gone. I crept back to the empty beach to try and figure out what the hell just happened. The water was still glowing softly green, but it was nothing like the display that I'd seen a moment ago. The ocean silently churned and boiled as dark shapes slipped below the surface. Something was feeding on whatever these guys had dumped into the water. The tracks from the dolly were hastily swept up all the way to the parking lot. It looks like they were in a hurry. Approaching the water, I found a small pile of the powder that had been carelessly spilled onto the beach. I gathered it up in one of my extra vials before hightailing it straight out of there. I'm not sure who I could have contacted and been taken seriously about this, so I resolved to do a little experiment of my own. When I got home, I poured my samples of ocean water into a big mixing bowl and then dumped the powder into the water. Sure enough, there was a bright flash upon contact, although nothing compared with the neon splendor in the ocean. Within about ten minutes, the light had all but completely faded, but even my small sample had begun to boil and churn. I left the mixture out overnight and went to bed, checking it first thing in the morning when I woke up. The bowl was nearly overflowing with squirming dark shapes, each almost four inches long. Rows of razor-sharp teeth like needles flashed in the light, and a hundred little legs flailed against the walls of the confined space. Out of morbid curiosity, I dropped a fried chicken drumstick into the water. One of them attempted to swallow it instantaneously, becoming hopelessly encumbered on the bone. The others wasted no time taking advantage of the opportunity, devouring the helpless creature alive. Within seconds, even the chicken bone had completely vanished, and all those beady little eyes were turned to fix on me for their next meal. Obviously, they didn't get it. By midday, there were only four of them left. They were eating each other with unrestrained savagery, snapping off the legs of any that swarmed too close. By evening, there was only three, but they'd grown to almost a foot long. I had to dump them in the bathtub to keep them from getting out, in fact. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but the limited space and meager scraps I'm sustaining them with must limit their growth eventually, right? I can only imagine what's going on right now in the vastness of the ocean, where they're free to reach their full potential. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with milk. We all had that phase, right? Where there was no food or drink and we just couldn't get enough and wanted it morning, noon and night. That was me with milk. I could drink it by the gallon. My parents didn't mind. They would rather I wanted something healthy like that to quench my thirst than be constantly after soda or one of those concentrate drinks full of sugar that you had to add water to. 
I could make myself sick sometimes, drinking too much too fast, but didn't every kid? Hell, even adults can have too much of a good thing and make themselves ill for it too. It was never enough to put me off though. No amount of aching bellies could separate me from my beloved milk. Nothing could. Or oh, so I thought. See, our kitchen was pretty small. Or at least it was too small to fit in the gigantic fridge and freezer that my parents had. So it was kept in the basement instead. One summer, when I was around 16, my parents decided that I was old enough to stay at home alone whilst they took off on a second honeymoon or something. Honestly, I didn't mind. At that age, I would rather have stayed home with my friends than been a third wheel to my parents as they tried to rekindle the romance or something. Besides, if I needed another, my grandparents lived right across the street. Yeah, my family was the kind who didn't stray far from their roots. It was all pretty uneventful, as you may have expected. I had friends over and we played video games, pigged out on takeout and... That was about it, beyond my taking care of the house duties. Until the third week. The house was old, so creaks and groans and other unexplained noises were something that I was used to and easily brushed aside. This one night, however, I had just come back from the basement, the door to which lay in our kitchen with a glass of milk, ready to crawl up the stairs and settle into bed for the night when an unusual banging came from the room I'd just left. I tried to brush it off as just the ancient stairs airing their complaints after I trampled up them, but there was something very off about it. In my 16 years of living in that house, I'd never heard anything like it. I figured it might have been a wild animal, maybe a raccoon or opossum that had somehow got in during the day. Being a typical teen, that was not something I wanted to deal with late at night, so... I simply locked the basement door to prevent it getting up into the main house and just went to bed. Morning came and I tentatively went down into the basement to check for any signs of wild animals. And beyond the few cobwebs to be expected, even in a furnished basement like our own, there was nothing. So I decided it really had been just one of those many noises of our old house. I got my usual glass of milk and headed back up the stairs. That night though, the noise returned. This time, I was sure that it wasn't simply random creaking too, because it started up at the exact same time, right before I headed up to my room for the night. The only difference was I hadn't been down to the basement yet, so it definitely was not the result of me stepping on some well-worn floorboards or something. Being the not particularly brave teen I was, I bolted out of the house and across to my grandparents, Fortunately, they were still awake and my grandfather was a bull of a man, not to be messed with. He marched over with his shotgun to investigate, only to come back half an hour later claiming that he couldn't find anything or anyone. He reasoned, like me, that it was maybe a raccoon and was hiding in a nook or cranny somewhere down there, and had locked the place up to stop it getting out, much as I had done the previous night. I stayed at my grandparents from that point on, going back into the house during the day to take care of any chores and play on my Nintendo for a couple of hours. I didn't go back down into the basement though, opting to eat and drink at my grandparents' home too. About a week before my parents got back, 
but there was a summer storm that caused a power outage. It lasted a couple of days, but gave me all the more reason to spend the remaining time my parents were away at my grandparents. When I returned one morning to open up the curtains, I noticed a foul smell spreading throughout the house. Knowing the power had been out, I assumed the heavy pungent odour was coming from the food in the fridge and freezer that had begun to go bad. The thought of dealing with it was unpleasant, but it wasn't something I wanted my parents to come home to, too. I didn't want to deal with the cleanup, and my grandparents would be out of town for the night visiting my great-uncle, and I didn't much fancy having to clear out rotting food alone. So, I did what any bone-idle teenager would do and just left it, sprayed some air freshener and dealt with it for the day, choosing to eat cereal and drink water rather than going down to the basement and being overwhelmed by the stretch seeping out of it. That night was particularly hot, even for summer, and so I ended up turning on the AC. The cool air spreading through the house was a relief as I went to sleep, but it was soon a decision that I was regretting. I woke up around four in the morning to find that the air of the house was thick and muggy. It was worse than when I had gone to bed. Worse still was the stench was so strong that I could taste it in my mouth. It was sweet and sour all at the same time, mixed with the sulfuric smell of rotten eggs and something my adolescent brain could only describe as someone having missed the toilet or something. I thought about a time when I was younger, when my dad had accidentally unplugged the fridge and none of us had noticed until the milk had gone off. I could remember that smell as I gagged and hurried into the upstairs bathroom, kneeling before the toilet as my stomach threatened to empty itself. It was sweet and bitter, like this smell, with something acidic that I've never known how to explain, and I could remember the thick and chunky sludge the milk had become. None of this helped me as the scent that filled the house seemed to flood into every pore of my body. I could smell it on my clothes. It was so strong that my eyes watered and with one final heavy flip, my stomach heaved and I vomited. How could the smell have gotten so bad in just a few hours? It was only when I was cleaning myself up at the sink that I noticed the air vents weren't pushing out any soothing cool air. Knowing that I obviously hadn't turned it off as I had been sleeping, I assumed the system was still messed up after the power outage. I couldn't stay in the house with that heat and the smell, and so, dressed only in my underwear, I hurried over to my grandparents and, once again, spent the night there. When they arrived in the morning, I explained the situation to them. Neither were pleased I hadn't taken care of the rotting food the day before, but agreed to help before it got any worse. Worse would be an understatement for the odour that smacked us in the face. My grandmother couldn't even make it into the house. She was an ashen white and bent over the table on the porch, gagging. Even my grandfather lost his hardened composure upon setting foot into the house, having brought a tissue out of his pocket to cover his nose and mouth. Stay here, he told me, a clear command, even if his words had been a little muffled. I, of course, didn't listen to him, because 
it made no sense to me for him to make me stay out and have him clean up all the mess. And once I heard the basement door open, I cut through the house to the kitchen. I can only describe walking into that kitchen as having your face millimeters from an oven door when it's opened and the wave of heat knocks you off your feet. It was that, but only the smell. I could hear my grandfather retching and coughing as he descended the stairs, and I myself was soon doing the same as I had made my way to the basement door with tears forming in my eyes. Now, my grandfather was a hard man, but I had never heard him swear until that moment, and it was as if he was making up for the lifetime of never saying a bad word with the string of curses leaving him. This urged me through the heated murk of stench that made traversing the stairs a grinding task. I wished that I had listened to my grandfather when he told me to stay with my grandma. He tried to urge me back up before I saw anything, but it was much too late for that. The noises I'd heard from the basement weren't from the house settling, nor were they from any animal. They were, indeed, from a human. A human, now rotting in the summer heat, and half hanging out of an air vent. Now, I knew how they'd stopped working, and how the smell had permeated the whole house so quickly. It also explained why neither me or my grandfather had found anything upon investigating the basement. They'd been in the vents. The fact that a person had somehow gotten into my home was chilling enough, but... To see them as the first dead body in my life was way worse. Death is a part of nature, but it's a disgusting part when the usual human ways of dealing with it aren't in practice. A body rots quickly in heat, and their corpse had been hanging in such a way that I'm sure if they'd been left another day or two, the body would have snapped in half. Fluids were leaking down the walls, congealed blood, dirty brown liquid that I didn't want to even think about. And the worst of it, something thick, white and pus-like that reminded me of that sour milk. The smell of death clings to everything, and even after the body was removed, all furniture from down there was tossed out and the basement was professionally fumigated, it still lingered. I threw out the clothes that I'd been wearing that day because no matter how many times they were washed, it was still there. I couldn't go down to the basement too because it still hit me like a truck each time I so much as passed the door. Even my parents, who were fortunate enough to still be gone during the worst of it, couldn't deal with it. They moved to the street over and from what my grandparents have told us, whenever someone new moves in, they always complain about the smell. We never did figure out how they got in, though. The police believe that there must have been some open window I missed one day, and I'm inclined to agree, I guess. They were homeless, looking for food and shelter. Something that I can't hold against them, really. I almost feel guilty in a way. The noises they made sneaking around the basement at night drove me away to my grandparents. Maybe if I'd stayed, I would have heard them call for help. If they had called for help at all, that is, when they got stuck in the vent. Maybe they'd 
still be alive? I don't know. What I do know is, from that day on, I couldn't drink milk anymore. The smell of even fresh milk would bring the reek of death back to me, like it had just been trapped and waiting somewhere at the back of my nose. The sight of it reminded me of those fluids seeping down our basement walls. When I was a kid, I loved milk, but now I hate it. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. So thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And before the episode ends, I would just like to fill you in on a great podcast that I was actually made aware of recently. The show is called This Sounds Serious, and is a castbox creation that features a fictional murder story that involves twins, cults, and a Florida weatherman. The show is actually a serialized story that incorporates comedy and horror. Each episode is about 25 minutes long, and it just launched on May 1st. You can find it wherever you get your podcast, and if you enjoy the Be Scared podcast, I'm pretty sure you guys will like This Sounds Serious as well. This season on This Sounds Serious. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, my brother. I, uh, I think he's dead. You are going to meet face-to-face with a murderer. Plus, it's Florida. Everyone's a criminal there. It's like America's Australia. It looked like he was French kissing the waterbed. There was a guy in my cult. He was like, uh... Hey, everybody, I think we should kill ourselves. And we were all like, uh, yeah, okay, Todd, you go first. This Sounds Serious is out now. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, guys, it would be great if you could subscribe to the podcast here as well so that you don't miss any episodes. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening, guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.